0: All right, I'm going to go ahead and get on with my bonus chat. You know, I did have something different um, to share with you. I walked into a lawyer's office this week, and uh, one of the workers in the office recognized who I was, been watching some of our live streams, and he said, you're you're a Ruckmanite. I haven't been called that in a long time. So I was going to talk to you about that, but I'll save this for, uh, well, will have to be next year, I guess. You know what, rather, uh, I have something on my heart that, maybe if you don't need it i need to say it out loud but if you're going to be in the ministry full time you need to figure it out real quick if you're going to do it right you got to do it only for god if you're doing it for the results if you if your motivation is going to be found in the fact that you have a lot of what you consider success, that you have a big church and lots of members, lots of people saved, that you're constantly getting good feedback. If that's what you're counting on to keep you going, now listen, we all need that from time to time, some encouragement, right? We need to see some some fruit for our labors. and I. I do believe that God gives us handfuls of purpose. If you're familiar with that reference from the book of Ruth chapter two, I believe that our Boaz, Jesus Christ, he gives us handfuls of purpose along the way. But as you minister for God, there are going to be plenty of days that discourage your heart, break your heart. The temptation will be to throw in the towel and quit and it's in those moments I preached on, I mentioned the verse this morning in my sermon, Hebrews 12, verse two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's in those moments that you have to squarely fix your gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ and remember that ultimately, right, we are trying to minister to people, we're trying to help, but ultimately we are doing this at the command, at the behest of Jesus Christ. And if we do it by His grace to the utmost of our ability, right? And 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 you understand what I mean. I know that it's not just our ability, but I'm going to give it my all, and I'm going to utilize all of the grace that God gives me. If I've done that, then despite the outcome, despite how successful the world might view it, that endeavor was a success in God's sight. You have to keep that in mind. Imagine how, if you just look at Jesus, he's hanging on a cross, his disciples have fled. (laughs) He looks like another failure there for a little while. But the greatest success story in history is he. When you look in the book of Acts, at Peter, chained up in a prison. You look at Paul multiple times in prison. When you read church history, you'd hardly think that some of these men are the heroes of the faith, but you go and read Hebrews chapter 11. Most of those characters were not popular famous or what we would consider successful, but those are the heroic stories of, of God's book. So please, I hope that you cling to those words. There will be days in the ministry, man, your heart is just filled to overflowing at what God's doing you'll get to see the Holy Spirit working on people and what a joy and then other days be a real I want to say kick in the gut (laughs) you just have to keep doing it for the Lord no matter what they say no matter what the outcome you just keep doing it God's way all right. I hope that encourages some of you. I'm going to switch over to this. You can open to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, and we do have a Matthew exam. Please, somebody help me remember at the end of class to give you the the notes for that. Um, you should also today. Is it today? No, forgive me. Is Somebody help me. Is it next week that the Philippians exam is due? Or, is, or have you guys already done that? Man, I'm getting my dates mixed up. Somebody maybe pop that into the chat section. We've received so many emails recently on the church email account. I, seems now that maybe you guys already did the Philippians exam. Now that I think about it, maybe you did. Well, in any event, I'll keep an eye on the chat section now. But let me remind you, I'm going to give you the notes for the Matthew exam. You have until next Sunday to write that exam. And you also have until next Sunday to turn in your assignment, the final assignment for this year of of Bible school. And um, if you already have it done, of course, you're welcome to turn that in early. And I can, by the grace of God, get started grading that. Uh, But you do have until next Sunday evening Thank you. I, we tried to finish all the classes by you know uh, in September, but the way things worked out, I, I don't think we did too too bad with the schedule. We had actually had a couple extra weeks that went into October in case we needed them, so we're only taking up one of those extra weeks, so that's not so bad. Past Wednesday, I think it was due already. Okay, I kind of think that it was. All right, good, good. Matthew twenty-eight verse eleven. Let's pray and then we'll get into this text. Father, thank you this evening for the opportunity to do this for you. And Lord, thank you for the encouraging moments that you do offer us. Thank you for allowing us to see the the fruit of our labors from time to time. But God, ultimately, whether we see it or not, we did it for you and that's enough. You're worth it. That's enough. God, help us as we study this passage, remind us of the importance of the command you gave us before you left this earth. Please make it real to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Ch- chapter 28, verse 11. The Bible says, now when they were going, this will be the women. Um, Jesus, remember, he he met them on the road as they were going to tell his disciples, and they wrapped their arms around them. So as they, now when they were going, behold, some of the watch. These are the soldiers that, uh, what was it back in verse two, three, four, back in verse four, they became as dead men. Some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all things that were done. So the chief priest now, they hear the, the true story. These soldiers, these the, the this is the Jewish watch, right? The group of soldiers that they had deployed to watch the tomb. So they hear now that uh, an angel came, rolled the stone away, and it the tomb is empty. My goodness, the hardness of these, of, of the hearts of these chief priests to, to hear that Jesus has, that the tomb is empty. And angels rolled the stone. The, the logical conclusion at this point, with all the evidence they had access to right there in, in their own time, their own life, they know these miracles were legit. They could see the people that Jesus healed, they could talk to these people and yet their heart was so hard. Verse 12, now it says, and when they were assembled with the elders, so they call a meeting, what they're going to do about it, and had taken counsel instead of repenting, they gave large money unto the soldiers saying, say ye his disciples came by night and stole them away while we slept. Now this Matthew, we're not sure where he received this information, how he became privy to this information. I, I can at the best I can do <clears throat> sorry, the best I can do is offer an educated guess, and I would guess that one or more <clears throat> so sorry that one or more of these soldiers probably converted at some point. You got to admit this. This would really shake your soul. So it wouldn't surprise me if that's how Matthew obtained this story. Uh, but however he came about it, here it stands: that the, the the Jewish leaders, political and religious, they came up with this story and paid the soldiers to tell this lie that the, the disciples came by night. Which for the soldiers wouldn't that have been a bit embarrassing, right? I mean, they're professional trained soldiers. This is what they do. And yet these fishermen, uneducated, uh, ignorant, unlearned fishermen, and a tax collector, Uh, Matthew, these disciples pitched up and overcame them, rolled the stone away, took the body. Really? I mean, that's a hard story to sell by itself, let alone the fact that it's not even true. But that had to have been humiliating for these soldiers to even tell this lie. But they, gave a, they had a large sum of money, so they told the lie. Now, this particular lie circulated amongst uh, Jewish thinking for several centuries. And even today, you'll find some Jews that still believe that's what happened. Obviously, as time has gone on, other theories have, have uh, sprung up. But this was the prevailing theory that explained the empty tomb and the lack of a corpse, is that the disciples must have stolen the body and went and hid it somewhere and then created this story about the resurrection. Uh, In verse 14, just to kind of fill this passage out, it says, and if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So I think they recognize that this story probably, you know, it's going to, be a, a slightly unbelievable. It's gonna be a long shot, but don't worry. We'll take care of that, guys. We'll, we'll handle it. So verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And as I've said, even, you can find people into the fifth century in, in the rabbinic literature and the Talmudic liter- literature that, where they, they pose this as a very viable theory against Christianity. And a few even still today hold to it. Uh, Bart Ehrman, if you know that name, he is a um, textual critic. He's an atheist. He very big opponent of Christianity and of the Bible. But he's also very well educated in biblical manuscripts and in the history behind it. He's written books about the Gospels and about the person of Jesus. And he has said quite a bit on this topic of the resurrection as well, trying to explain that the resurrection story as presented in the gospels is is unreliable. So his theory is that after Jesus was taken down from the cross, he believes that Jesus did die on the cross. Uh, Some skeptics don't even believe that, but he believed that Jesus did die on the cross. But then afterwards, his body was taken down and like any common criminal, just cast off on the side of the road and the dogs probably, now this, he 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 does say probably, can't prove it, but he says most likely the dogs ate the body. And that's what happened to the evidence. Um, I'm glad that he admits that's a probably. But let's just play this out for a moment. Let's say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We, from this story alone, we know that even the worst of Jesus' enemies admit that the tomb was empty. The soldiers know it was empty, the chief priests, the elders, the governor, everybody knows that the tomb is empty. So you've got to explain the empty tomb, which as I mentioned a lesson or two ago, that is the empty tomb is an incredibly strong support for the fact that Jesus did not did rise from the dead. And, and as you think this through, it becomes a, even a stronger and stronger support because let's say Bart Ehrman's right. And they just took the body down and cast it on the side of the road. Do you really think that the disciples of Jesus, right? And there were several that loved him. Now you can say all you want about well they were deceived and you know they they were following a deceiver. Be that as it may, you can think that if you like, but you cannot deny the fact that they loved him. You, we know that these there was women there were women following. All the events from the crucifixion to the burial that waited by the tomb. To think that they would have allowed the body to just be cast to the side of the road and not to have given it a proper burial. We know that the night, what was it, a couple nights before Christ is arrested. No, no not a couple, six nights before, right? We, got, we had that timing issue. That Mary came and anointed the body of Jesus for burial, so to think that his disciples would have allowed him to be cast to the side of the road and eaten by dogs, that that to me, you're really grasping at straws there. You're really trying hard to explain away the evidence. Now think of this. Let's work with the story as is presented here. This was the common um, rebuttal or retort to Christians saying our Messiah rose from the dead. The Jews would respond and say, no, you guys have been tricked. The disciples stole the body and hid it somewhere. That's what's going on. Okay, let's let's think that through. Let's pretend that that's the case. Why then? If the disciples stole the body and hid it, then they start preaching all throughout Jerusalem, Samaria, or Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. They go everywhere telling people that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. Now, if they stole the body and hid it, they are intentionally lying and deceiving, deceiving people. To what end? If they were becoming incredibly famous and rich and trying to get people to give up their money and their lands, as many cult leaders do, right? That does happen. People do tell lies in order to gain fame and fortune. If that was how the apostles approached their business. If that was their goal, then I would say yeah, there's that's a viable option to say maybe they stole the body. Look at, you know, look at how they mis, misused the story. But guys, the disciples, why would they suffer persecution, die penniless, if I can use that term, even though they didn't have pennies necessarily, but die penniless? They died and and the world considered them the off-scouring, the scum of the earth. They did not die with a good reputation. They did not die comfortably. They they died horrible deaths, were horribly persecuted. If you're one of these disciples, one of these apostles, and we say, hey, let's get together and create a lie. Let's go deceive people so that we can be brutally killed, so that we can lose everything we have. I'm sorry, but that just... Furthermore, we know that these disciples, by and large, are not learned men. We, in the book of Acts, Luke, he, now he was a medical doctor, so he was a learned man, but he acknowledges that the other apostles, John and Peter, that, like the leaders, that they were unlearned and ignorant men. So to think that these men could concoct a plan to deceive hundreds of thousands of people, create this massive following, come on that I, for me, it takes a lot more faith to believe that than rather to believe that Jesus, who prophesied of his death, burial, and resurrection, and all of his other prophecies came to pass, he fulfilled dozens of other prophecies with his own life. When you take into account his life, his miracles, when you look at the whole story, I think the most logical, rational conclusion is that Jesus did rise from the dead. That's why the tomb was empty. And that perfectly explains why the apostles did what they did in the book of Acts, why they were willing to suffer the way that they did and live under horrible conditions because they knew, they were completely convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, he was the Son of God, He was God manifest in the flesh, and this was all evidenced by His physical resurrection from the dead. All right, uh, verse number 16. It says here, "Then the ele- you know what? It just hit me. I'm so sorry. I told you guys, I would give you an outline for this chapter. Wow, it slipped my mind until this very moment. I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm, I'm seeing if I can work on my uh, work quickly here off the top of my head. You know what? Ra- rather than try to rush through something like that, let me. I will post an outline on the PBI group. I'm so sorry for that, guys. For forgive me. It just hit me. Had a lot of other things going on this week, so forgive me there. All right, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. Uh, 11, obviously, because Judas is no longer a part of them. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Now, I've made quite a a deal about the location where Jesus was going to meet them, that being Galilee. I've shown you, I've emphasized it back in chapter 26. We saw it earlier. Uh, You can just let your eyes scroll up the page. I'll I'll scroll up here. Uh, In verse 10, Jesus said unto them, be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee. There shall they see me. Now, Matthew, the way he tells the story, there's a cut scene, right? He goes from Jesus talking to the women, telling them what to say to to the other men, to the disciples. And then Matthew cuts over to what the soldiers are saying to the priest and how they concoct this lie and pay them for it. And then Matthew cuts back to Jesus going to Galilee. So the way Matthew is telling the story, he's focusing on this part of it where Jesus said to the ladies, I'm gonna meet him in Galilee. Matthew actually skips eight days because it took eight days for the disciples to get to Galilee and Jesus to meet them there. That's when that meet took place. So I just want you to, uh, to, to have that in mind. Again, you know, Matthew is not concerned as much with chronology as he is with just getting across certain points of the story. So this is also evidence of Matthew's style. Uh, Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. Now, we know that they didn't do this immediately. They did not go to Galilee on the night of the resurrection because uh, in John, forgive me, John I'm just checking in my Bible. Yeah, I'm uh, sorry. John chapter 20 and verse 19. I thought I typed it in correctly. There we go. All right, John 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, Now this is the day of the resurrection, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and, say, and saith unto them, peace be unto you. So this is, Jesus met them. They're assembled in the upper room. You guys forgive me. I, I'm gonna tell you the story from John and then I'm gonna skip over to Luke to give you the, the geography on it. So this is the night of the resurrection. The, the The disciples, they're scared of the Jews, they've assembled in the upper room, right? You can see verse 20, 21, 22, 23, Jesus speaks to them. And then we get this part of the story, verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. So that first appearance when they're locked in the upper room, Thomas wasn't there. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now watch verse 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were within. So there's a jump in the time. Jesus appeared to the apostles in the upper room the night of the resurrection. And I'm gonna show you now in Luke, that happened in Jerusalem. And then eight days later, there's another appearance and he appears to Thomas, and you know how that story goes. You put your hand into my, into my side. You know, to, you, you can see, you can feel, handle the evidence. This is taking place in Galilee. Uh, let me jump over to Luke uh, and see if I can get the verse. Forgive me, I I'm struggling to see my notes in my Bible, so. Uh. Right, there we go. So you remember on when, when Jesus rose, he appeared to these two on the road to Emmaus. In verse 33, they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. So the two on the road to Emmaus, they have this meal or started to have this meal with Jesus. Jesus, uh, he, Well, he, I'm losing my words tonight. I want to say he immediately left. He quickly left. Yet yeah, he vanished. I'm sorry. Verse 31. Their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, "Did not our heart, heart burn within us while we talked, while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the Scriptures?" They rose up the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them. So the the apostles they're still in Jerusalem. That's the night of the resurrection. And as Luke continues on, you can see in verse 36, they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst and saith unto them, peace be unto you. They were terrified. So this will match what happens in John 20, verse 19. So Jesus first appears to the apostles as a group in Jerusalem. Eight days later, he meets them. They're again assembled in a room, uh, but they're in Galilee by that time. All right, forgive me. I struggled a bit with getting that out. I hope that was clear. Let me know if you have some questions about that. I'll try to straighten it out if I need to. I think think you got the point though. All right, Matthew 28 and verse uh, 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Now, some doubted. What do we do with that? Because we know Thomas doubted, right? That that's a pretty easy one. Uh, but I mean we call him doubting Thomas for a reason. But this is some doubted. Now again, some people when they look at the word some, they will say but someone doubted. Um, I don't know if I'd go that route with this. That when whenever the Bible uses the word some in this way, it usually is not narrowing things down to one person. I'm going to say that there, were, there was at least one other person that was in doubt. Now, God help me, I'm going to try to show you a few other verses um, to show you who that other doubter might have been. So here we go again. I'm going to jump around in the Gospels a bit. Luke chapter 24 and verse 12, which, by the way, that is your attendance code, if I can get that to work. Luke 24 and 12, it says, Then arose Peter and ran into the sepulchre. This is after the women came and and told him that Jesus was alive. Then arose Peter and ran into the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. Now Notice it doesn't say that he believed. It says he was wondering in himself. Now, this, this word wondering, you can find it several other times in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it's translated as marveled. So th- this doesn't, by itself, this doesn't mean that he didn't believe. This just means he walks away going, wow, that's that's something. But it, this is no sort of statement that says he did or didn't believe. But at the very least, you see that Peter's trip to the tomb and finding it empty has uh, at least left him with his jaw on the ground going, wow, okay, now what do I do with this? Now, th- just from reading Luke, that's what you would conclude. Uh, let me give you this verse in John. This gives us more information. Mary Magdalene was the one that actually told Peter and John. Then Peter and John ran to the tomb Um you can see they then verse 6 then cometh Simon Peter following him following John and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie so that matches what we read in Luke and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped together in a place by itself then went in also that other disciple that'll be John which came first to the sepulcher and he saw and believed now I the reason I point this out to you is because When John wrote this, he points out that just going into the empty tomb and seeing the clothes of Jesus left behind and the napkin and all that, that was convincing enough for John. So John individually believed at that point. But this indirectly tells me that Peter, even though he's amazed, he marvels at it, he was wondering in himself, I don't think Peter was immediately convinced Think there might have been some doubts. Um, let me show you again in Mark sixteen, Mark sixteen, and verse fourteen. Uh, as a matter of fact, let me just check one thing while I'm while I got you here. Um, now I'll just mention it. It's not in Mark's gospel. In, in Luke twenty four, we find. You might have even seen it actually just a few moments ago when we were there that the two on the road to Emmaus, when they get to Jerusalem and tell the apostles that they've seen the Lord, they mention that the Lord has appeared to Simon. Now that's interesting. The Lord appeared to Simon, but then right after that, Jesus enters the room where the disciples are huddled together for fear of the Jews. And this is what he says to them. Mark 16:14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So I understand that Jesus is addressing the group. By this time, I would say that John individually believes. But when Jesus says this, it sure does leave room to assume that Peter was not yet convinced. So it's my guess that when we read in the book of Matthew, some doubted. I'm going to say that at least there was Thomas definitely, but then at least I would say Peter could also be included in that list. I don't know how long he doubted and what it took to to finally convince him, but I would say he's at least one other. There might have been some other doubters amongst them because as we've mentioned many times, the disciples, they'd heard Jesus talk about the resurrection, but this is not something that they immediately understood. So there might have been some other doubts there. All right, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying... Now, again, there's a massive time jump in this. You have to factor in uh, the 40 days that Jesus appeared to his disciples. And it's not that he appeared every day to him. We know that he didn't. But over the course of the next 40 days, Jesus did appear several times and taught them uh, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He reminded them about the Holy Spirit coming down. Uh, this we you can get this from not only the Gospels, but also Acts chapter one gives us a lot of this information. And Jesus came and spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now there are a lot of various um, approaches to this verse. A lot, a lot of different things get said about it. I I believe what Jesus is pointing out is that he has the same authority over heaven and earth that the Father has. This goes along with the idea of Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until thine enemies uh, are, become thy footstool. And it shows an equal level of authority. I think that's the statement that Jesus is making. Now, others will say that, and which I, I can't really argue too much with this next explanation uh, that, that I've heard, but people say that Jesus, as being God manifest in the flesh, he's always had power in heaven and earth. Um, as, as the sovereign creator, right? He has that kind of power. However, it's at this juncture that Jesus now is going to send down the Holy Spirit and he is going to offer gifts through the Holy Spirit to men, right? So he's taking something from heaven, sending it to men to accomplish his purpose as far as the body of Christ and and winning souls. And I, I can't argue with that too much. That That is true. Jesus did do that, right? He did. Jesus did tell them, wait here in Jerusalem for the for the promise of the spirit and look at uh, look at how it's worded in Luke's gospel um, he says in verse 49 Luke 24 verse 49And behold I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high now what's interesting about the way this is worded Jesus says, I send the promise of my father upon you in other places, wait, the, the Father will send it, which is true, but the Father has given authority to the Son, right, to make these decisions, to make these commands, to send the Spirit. So now Jesus is stepping up saying, I'm sending him. Wait until you be endued with power. So I, I think we can tie all that to, together maybe. All right, let's uh, come back to Matthew. Trying to make my fingers work a little better. There we go. Uh, let me just give me just a second. Christoph has a question. Why did the glorified body? Okay, let me move this into this section here. Why did the glorified body of Jesus have the wounds from the cross? That is an excellent question, actually. All right, uh, you guys, give me a second. I'm going to have to look for this in my Bible. I'm gonna say for evidence, at the very least for evidence that the one that hung on the cross is the one that rose from the dead. If he comes back with a perfectly, uh, I wanna say healthy, but whole body, no marks of what happened to him, it could be that the disciples would say, you know, maybe this is, we're, this is an imposter, somebody posing as Jesus, as a lookalike, but to have the same wounds, That, I think, uh, acted as very strong evidence that he was indeed the same one that was hanging on the cross and was buried. Um, There's a verse, yeah, Isaiah 49, verse 16. Let me pull it up for you guys. Isaiah 49 and verse 16. Interesting verse here. Behold, this is the Lord speaking, by the way. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. So it's these wounds, right? Even in Zechariah, uh, let, let, me, let me go to that verse, actually. And one, Zechariah 13, 6, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was, I was wounded in the house of my friends. So battle scars right? Battle scars. It's evidence of how much he loved us, how much he did for us. It's evidence that he was the one that died on the cross and physically rose from the dead. You might even say, based on these verses, it's, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. So I think all of that would play into it, but that's a good, good question, Christoph. I hope that answers what you were wondering about. All right, back to Matthew. I, keep, I don't know what I'm typing wrong. Okay, third time's a charm. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, watch carefully how this works into the next statement. What we're about to read in verses 19 and 20, this is what we often call the great commission for, for very good reason. Right? There is no greater um, command or charge that has been given to the disciples of Christ beyond this. This is what we should be focused on. Go ye therefore. Now, What is the therefore therefore? Go ye therefore. So because I have all power in heaven and earth, then what I'm about to tell you to do, you can do it. Because what he's gonna ask of his disciples, these unlearned ignorant fishermen, they spent three years in a real life Bible school, right? Not just in a classroom, but walking with Jesus, learning, listening, doing the miracles, now he's telling these men just after three and a half years you guys i want you to go change the world Wow! really lord you're asking me to partake of that that's a big ask but i think that's why he prefaced the great commission by saying all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth so whatever you need if it's something heavenly something uh earthly something spiritual something physical Jesus has authority to, to manage that, to give grace, to give whatever resources needed. You can get the job done. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So I, if I can break verses 19 and 20 into three parts, let, I, this maybe you can think of this as a three-point outline. Point, point one, the scope of the commission. The scope of the commission, all nations. This is not something just for the Jews but for everybody. Now, when you take this uh, alongside Mark 16, verse 15, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Acts 1, 8, Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, We know that the scope of this, there's not anyone that doesn't need to be reached, doesn't need to hear the gospel. I, I hope that that truth plays out in your life. I hope that you When you view the world, you see it as a mission field. That's the scope of this command. Now the next thing is uh, the sign of the commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So this is a way of a convert, of somebody who has made this commitment to Christ, this is their way of publicly showing I am a follower of God, right? I acknowledge not just that this man, Jesus, was a great prophet. I acknowledge the connection that Jesus has with the Godhead. So Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this verse is incredibly important because from the mouth of Jesus, we have the Trinity mentioned. So some opponents of the Trinity will say, well, Nowhere in the Bible does it say that there's one God with three persons. Now, in the King James Bible, we do have 1 John 5, verse 7. says there's three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's a very clear verse that says it. But a lot of people have issues with the manuscript evidence for that verse. Listen, that, that's a story for another time. But even without that verse, and I accept it, but even without it, this verse clearly shows that there's one being, but there are three persons involved. You say, how would you see that? Baptizing them in the name, singular, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So there's one name for each, and that one name applies to all three persons. Now, this singular name, as you can see in Acts chapter 10, When Peter is baptizing, he's got the wrong verse there, Acts 10, 48. When Peter is baptizing Cornelius and his household, it says he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. That's the name that uh, works with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Ghost. Now, this is something in discipleship that we do cover in the lesson on baptism. So I won't go too, too far into all the other stuff that's connected to that. But let me just emphasize that this is the sign of the commission, right? This is something that we are commanded to do. It's not necessary for, <clears throat> sorry, it's not necessary for somebody's salvation. But just like any group, even our church, right? We have a logo. It's a way of identifying. I'm sorry, I have a hoja flying around in here. It's a way of identifying yourself that I am associated with that group, and I'm not ashamed to be associated with that group. So that's the sign of the commission. And then verse uh, twenty, uh, yeah, chapter 28, verse 20, this is the final part of the commission, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Uh, so let me give you part three. That's the structure, the structure for the commission. So the scope, reach all nations. The sign, we can rally behind and and express our our commitment through this sign of baptism, and then the structure. How do we help these people beyond just making a commitment and accepting the gospel, right? Understanding the death, burial, and resurrection. How do we help them become full-blown followers of Christ so that what Christ taught and what he did the, the death, burial, and resurrection, so that that gets applied to every part of their life. That's where this part comes in. We would call this, I think, discipleship. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, we know that as the New Testament progressed, and we've touched on this before, uh, mysteries were revealed to Paul, the mysteries of the faith, also called the mysteries of the gospel. So there, there were more tr- more truths that God revealed as time went on. But the things that Jesus taught about how to follow God, how to live, how to be a disciple, none of that changed. the fact that the body of Christ started in Acts 2 and that the Holy Spirit baptizes people into that body and you have that spiritual connection with the Lord. As we know, these are things that were revealed through Paul and Jesus did not expound on them. He did not even mention many of those things. But as it pertains to how we should connect to God, how we should view Him, follow Him, submit to Him, obey Him, the the part about forsaking all. I preached on it this morning, carrying our cross daily. None of that changed. None of that changed. Now, let me mention that some people, they take verses 19 and 20 and they say that this is not something that we should be concerned about. This is not our problem. They say that this commission was given to the apostles. It was their job. Sorry, that hojas here again. And now that the apostles are gone, are, are gone, dead and gone, that this great commission no longer applies. And therefore, we do not need to worry about evangelism and discipleship. We just... We, we, we can apply the teachings of Christ, but we should not uh, make any efforts to persuade or convince other people to be followers of Christ. You would be surprised at how many people take that position that, that, and call themselves Christians. To me, that is a prime example of something called hyper-dispensationalism. Now, you understand, I am a dispensationalist. I believe that God works at different times with different people in different ways. But I believe, right, in rightly dividing the word, but I believe you can over-divide things. And to try to take this great commission away from us now as a church, right, as as the body of Christ, I think is a dangerous mistake. Uh, Let me give you guys a few reasons why I, I would say that we still need to be busy with this great commission. All right, first off, let me show you in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Paul, when writing to them, he said this. Let me make sure I get full context. Yeah, verse 14. Let's start reading there. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reached not unto you, for we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Now, just pause for a moment there. If the Great Commission only applied to the, to the apostles, the 12 that Jesus was talking to, you have to factor in Matthias at this point, by the way. But if it only applies to them, what do you do with Paul? He, he wasn't one of those 12. Why is he so busy taking the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth? Verse 15, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, But having hope when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. So he says, we have come to you with the gospel. We've discipled you. Now we want to see you take the gospel elsewhere. And in so doing, you are enlarging our efforts. Not that Paul is physically going to the next place. But the job that Paul was doing, the commission he was fulfilling, it is getting done in other areas through his efforts uh, because of who he discipled. Verse 16, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another, man, uh, another man's line of things made ready to our hand. So you can see Paul expected this church to take the gospel to the regions beyond, to go even farther than Paul had gone at, at, to this point. So Paul was busy fulfilling the Great Commission. He wasn't there when Jesus said this in Matthew 28. Paul expects this local church in Corinth to be busy fulfilling the Great Commission. So that by itself, I I believe, is, is pretty strong evidence that what Jesus said in Matthew 28, Mark 16, in Acts chapter 1, yes, it did apply to those apostles, sure, but that is the commission given to the church. These men are the leaders of the church. And what Jesus, the commission, he wants to be done is going to be fulfilled through the work of the church. Uh, Let me show you another passage in Luke. Luke 24 and verse 46. Jesus, it says here, said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and, and that, now watch carefully how this is worded. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. The way it's worded in verse 47, Jesus is telling these witnesses that are physically there listening to him, the apostles, that repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus name should be preached everywhere. Do you see how it's not limited? The way it's worded here, it's not it's not as if Jesus expects only these 12 to be doing it. The way that's worded, he expects that job to be done. Furthermore, if these apostles are teaching others to observe all things that Jesus commanded, then wouldn't that include teaching them to fulfill the great commission? It kind of would have to, wouldn't it? I'm so sorry. I don't know why I can't type that in correctly. There we go. All right, back to Matthew 28 and verse 20. All right, so to finish up this verse, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. That's just the old English for always. I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So that's Matthew finishing the gospel off, just saying that's the close of it. This is, by the way, why we close prayer and um, any time a fellowship will often close it by saying "Amen" in some way or another. I'm going to switch over to this version of the Bible app because I want to show you the Greek word that stands behind "world." The world, and I might have even shown this to you at one other point. Maybe I did in Matthew 24. I can't remember if I was using this Bible program while I taught through that. Um, but this word is eon. right? And we use this in English, actually, the, the English equivalent of it, the word eon. Um, but you can see when you look into the, the Greek dictionary, or a lexicon, as they call it, um, I'm, I'm, maybe you can see my mouse working here, from the same as G104. So eon, yeah, just telling you the root of it is all that's given you. And then the second part, properly an age. So it is, it's perfectly fine to translate the word eon as world, but you understand it as, as an age, a, a period of time. So Jesus used the word that, this way many times, in this world or in the world to come. And that wasn't a reference to the new earth that's going to come down. He was talking about the, this present time in which I'm on the earth, and the time that I'll come back and be on the earth. So you can see through the rest of the explanation here, how this word is is quite, um, I wanna say flexible, how, how it can be used to uh, denote the world or a period of time. All right, so in many Bibles, it'll they translate it here, unto the end of the age, which is, that's a legitimate translation. I have no problems with unto the end of the world. I actually like that better and I'll tell you why. Because it's a, it gets two things done at once. Jesus has just told his disciples, which includes us, take this message, take what I've done and what, uh, what I've taught you, take it to the uttermost part of the earth. Well, thank God he's going to be with me always, no matter where I go. I can go to the farthest part, to the uttermost part, and he will be with me to the end of the geographical world, right? And the same can also be said that there is not one period of time, when you look through the last 2,000 years of church history, Jesus, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, has been with his people. He has not left them. He has not forsaken them. Even through all the difficult periods of of uh, persecution and tribulations that believers have gone through, and even, even to the period of church history where, the body of Christ has fallen asleep a bit, especially these last days, right? This Laodicean-type attitude, he's still with us. Now, he's, out, he's on the outside knocking on the door trying to get in and have fellowship with people, but he, he will not leave his church. He's promised to be with us. Um, I think it would be good to see how Mark concluded his gospel. This gives us an idea of just how real the Lord's presence is when he said, I'll be with you always. This is how we understand it. Mark 16, 20, they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. What a thought. Fellow laborer, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with the signs following, amen. So as these apostles go out, the Lord is with them. And as we go out, the Lord's presence can be real to us. He has all power in heaven and earth. He has been granted this authority by the Father to work through us to get the message to everyone so that they can also have a relationship with God. All right, that's as far as we need to go tonight. We have reached the end of Matthew's gospel. Praise the Lord. All right, uh, Christoph, I hope that answered your question. I don't see any other questions, uh, but please, we have a couple minutes now, so if you do have a question, feel free to slip it in. Just now, I am going to give you the notes for your Matthew exam. All right. I hope that you can see that. There we go. So, number one, explain. This will be, by the way, chapters 22 until 28. Uh, Number one, explain from the context how we know that the body of Christ is not that should be referenced, is not referenced in chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. So there's a parable there about a king who's putting on a wedding feast and invites people. I want you to look in that context and, and explain how we know that the body of Christ is not part of that parable. Uh, if, if you don't see it immediately in the context, in the verses itself, I know I, I mentioned that, so it should be in your notes somewhere. Number two, what were the three questions Jesus received in chapter 22? So the Herodians came, the Sadducees came, and then a lawyer spoke up with a question. Uh, you can abbreviate these questions, so you know, just make it fit on that one line. Number three, <clears throat> list two mistakes the hypocritical Pharisees and scribes were making from chapter 23. Now, they need whatever the mistakes were, they need to be found in chapter 23. Jesus offered a scathing rebuke. Please do not write hypocrite, okay? Because I've given you that much in the, in the question. I know they're hypocrites, but Jesus gave several particular things that they were doing wrong. So two of those things. I think there's like eight that you can choose from. Uh, verse, or number four, which verse from chapter 23 supports the doctrine of Christ's deity? There's one verse especially that really pops for this. Number five, what are the two main points that Jesus communicates to his disciples concerning the end of the world? This I emphasize strongly when we went through chapter 24 and even into chapter 25. I know that I mentioned it a few other times. So again, you can read the text and discern it for yourself, but it should be in your notes. Number six, according to the teachings of Christ in chapter 25, must a person... Hold on to and practice his faith to gain entrance into the kingdom. Now, I'm not asking what Paul taught about it. I'm asking according to chapter 25, to what Jesus said in that chapter. Is the last part of that question true? Uh, Number seven, what kind of box did the woman use who anointed the body of Jesus? You'll find that in chapter 26. Number eight, give a verse from chapter 26 which speaks of a vicarious atonement. And I explained what those words meant. And uh, there's one verse that deals specifically with that. Number nine, give a verse from chapter 26, which shows where the New Testament started. All right. also one very clear verse for that. Number 10, how does this phrase end? The spirit indeed is willing. And then you'll find the rest of this in chapter 26, verse 41. All right. And and you do need to know each word in the correct order. So you can actually get five things wrong there if you're not careful. Number 11, on what grounds did the Jews eventually consider Jesus to be worthy of death? You know, as I, I'm going to reword this a little bit. You guys help me out. How How would I say this? Can I make that singular? Because there's one thing that they found to accuse him of. So maybe I've Worded that wrong on what ground? Can the word can you use that in the singular? Doesn't that have to be plural? I don't know. I need my chat section. You guys help me out here. <laughs> on what ground? Let me reword the question at least now so that you can understand it. it, it that sounds wrong on what ground? I'm going to leave it on what grounds, but understand that there's one thing that they f- ultimately came to and said, he's guilty of this, so he should be put to death. So one thing there. Number 12, Judas casting the money into the temple triggered the fulfillment of what Old Testament prophecy? Right? You'll find that in chapter 27. Number 13. Now, bear in mind, I need the Old Testament verse. Why did the chief priest and elders deliver Jesus to Pilate? This is specifically mentioned. There's one thing that caused them or drove them to do that. Uh, and don't put hatred. It's not hatred. That's right? too broad. There's one specific thing. Verse four, or number 14, how long was Jesus on the cross? This is something that you'll have to get from your notes, but I know I've mentioned that many times. Number 15, what verse was Jesus quoting when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So again, you'll need to give me the Old Testament reference. Number 16, where were the disciples supposed to meet Jesus after his resurrection? Now, I, I tried to walk you through that tonight, how the, the whole chronology of it happened, you know, with the sequence of the events. But I'm asking where Jesus planned for this to happen. Where were they supposed to meet him? Not where did they meet him? Number 17, give one reason. You know what? I'm looking at number 16, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. I think I could have worded that question better. I, I think you understand what I'm aiming for there. I'm just gonna leave it like that. If you have any questions about it, you can let me know if you're wondering what I'm driving at there. But number 17, give one reason why the Great Commission is still applicable today. I actually gave you three. Uh, four. I gave you four tonight, so choose one of those. And then there's two memory verses, Matthew 22, verses, or verse 29, and Matthew 24, verse 35. Okay, so that's your Matthew exam. Let me just quickly pop over here and see if we have questions. This isn't a question, but I just appreciate that, Francois. Well, thanks, man. You're a blessing. All right. Any of you know, if any of you been in our church for a while, you know that we have the greatest deacon I think that I've ever known outside of the book of Acts. Sorry, Francois, I got to put you below Stephen, but thank God for a good, great deacon. Brother Mike, why couldn't Mary touch Jesus when she met him in the garden? All right, this is the question I'm going to deal with here. Zitle's asking, why couldn't Mary touch Jesus when she met him in the garden? Jesus explained that he hadn't gone to the father yet. So I've touched on this briefly, I think it was last week, that, and and this is not explained in the text, so we have to make an educated guess at this, but it is educated in that we can answer it with other verses. Jesus needed to offer a sacrifice in heaven. This we get from Hebrews chapter 9. Matter of fact, I've mentioned that cross-reference before but I have yet to show it to you. So we do cover this when we go through Hebrews, but let me, let me quickly, ah, I'm struggling mightily tonight to get my references to come up. All right, uh, so quickly here, Hebrews 9.23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, speaking about the sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices these. So Jesus had to take the uh, sacrifices to heaven. Now, those sacrifices, if you read through the context, his body and his blood. So I am going from this and the fact that Jesus said, you can't touch me. I'm going to say that Jesus could not be defiled by human touch. That if Mary had touched him, then that would have defiled the sacrifice that he's going to have to make to cleanse the heavenly things, the patterns of things in the heavens. Uh, so after Jesus ascends to heaven and performs this sacrifice, or you know, offers it up, then he's able to come back down. Once that is done, then the women are able to hold him after that. So I hope that answers that question. It's a good question. It does come up quite a bit. All right, let me pop back over here. All right, Christoph, you say, you could say, what were their just What, what was their justification to put Jesus to death? Yeah. That's actually a very, that's, uh, um, yeah, I like that. I like that. So if any of you misunderstood how I, what I intended to ask in that question, Christoph has got a good idea. Let me pop it up on the screen for you. You could say, what, and, and this is an English thing, what was, if it's singular, you say was, if it's plural, it were, what was their justification to put Jesus to death? So, yeah, that's another way to say it, a good way to say it. All right, and then it looks like Mike Flick is saying, I'm not saying this, this is actually my family out in the other room. Thank you for the lessons. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Amen. All right, very good. Guys, thank you for all of your time. It's been a wonderful year. Who knew that this year would end up like this, right, that we'd be doing this online, but praise God. We were able to finish an entire year of Bible school via live stream, so thank God for that. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we will close close down. I will say one more thing. I mentioned that preacher's class, guys i've I had a couple guys come to me. We're gonna have one on the thirteenth of October, which is a Tuesday, Tuesday night at six pm. So if anybody's interested, you can fall in with that. You can just message me privately and let me know. I'll give you the details of the uh, location, the venue. All right, Father, thank you this evening for your help to teach through this and Lord, I, I, I want us to really take seriously this this commission that you've given us to go out and make more disciples help us lord you have all power in heaven and earth so thank god we don't have to rely on our power our wisdom it's not even our message you have done you've made everything possible all we have to do is put in the effort lord labor abundantly help us god to do that lord thank you for giving us such wonderful evidence of your resurrection in so many ways Lord, and to think that those scars that you received there on the cross, you, it's a constant reminder of what you did for us, that for all eternity we'll never forget. Lord, I, I do thank you. Thank you for making your love clear to us, for wrapping your arms around us day by day. And I pray for each one of these students, the people that have tuned in to listen to this, let this, let all these seeds fall into good ground and Bring forth fruit in due time, Lord, a hundredfold. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Been a great year, Lord willing. I'll see you again soon.